Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I certainly feel benefits from having that global perspective. We learn. We learn wherever we go. The thing that excites me most about the next five years is seeing this open data regime really gaining shape and it's gaining shape in different areas and i say the uk might be leading in open banking brazil's got open banking but also leading in open insurance somewhere like indonesia is going to drive the world in terms of payment wallets everywhere can learn together from that It was a little over eight years ago now, so I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations has expired on this. But when I was hired to join TransUnion in Hong Kong, I think it was partly on the unspoken assumption that I had experience working within a credit bureau, because I had indeed worked at Experian in the past. But the fact is, while I was at Experian, I was quite isolated from the bureau side of the business. We used to look at our clients' scorecards. We used to look at our clients' businesses. We used to help them optimize those. And sometimes that would include data from the credit bureau. But I never really took a long and hard look at what was there. And I hate to admit it because at that stage, I had more than a decade of experience in the market. But still, there was that little hangover in the back of my mind that framed credit bureaus as a repository of negative outcomes, of negative behaviors. But how wrong I was. I would say as a rule of thumb, 80% of people on a comprehensive credit bureau have no negative data at all. So far more often when we're talking about credit bureau data, we're talking about positive data. So credit card payments that have been made, mortgage payments that have been made, but also now rental payments that have been made. And as we'll hear in my interview with John Ruffley, open banking expands that scope far beyond anything I'd ever imagined. Welcome to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. And so I'm John, John Ruffley. I am the global head of the Data Exchange in Experian. The Data Exchange is a global data innovation team. Uh, I've been doing this role for just over two years now. And prior to that, I was director of strategy for our UK and Ireland business. Did a lot of work in the fintech space. We spent a lot of time working through our data strategy and led the implementation of open banking in the UK, right from the inception through to market. Thanks, John. Now, the theme for today's discussion is expanding the definition of credit bureau data which I guess is another way of saying what is the latest evolution of credit bureaus. And I put it that way because it was until very recently I would have thought of the evolution of credit bureaus in a fairly logical flow where the first question we would ask was, does this country have a credit bureau? So when I was working for HSBC, I oversaw the tiny market of Brunei. And at that time, they were looking for operators for their first ever credit bureau, because the World Bank's ease of doing business index gives you some points for that. 
Step two, when there was a credit bureau in place, you would ask, is it negative only data? And if it was, you would say, okay, we now need to look at how do we transition this to a comprehensive credit bureau, one that includes positive and negative payment data. I mean, even big markets like Australia have only just gone comprehensive. And as we heard in my interviews with Jaime and Jacob, markets like Spain and some of the Nordic countries remain negative only. And then the third step, when that was in place, you would say, okay, we've got all the banks, we've got all the lenders involved. How do we expand the data universe? And then you might bring in some telcos or you might bring in some insurance providers. And we might talk about that as being alternative data, but it was still coming from big corporates that didn't look all that different from financial services. But that's changing now, isn't it, John? Yeah, definitely. Just taking taking a slight step back, if, if I look at Experian and, and other bureaus, and if I look back over time, I think they've always been drivers of innovation. You're, you're right in terms of there's lots of different flavors of bureaus around the world. And if you take a general progression from one that only has negative data to maybe then has some positive data over time, even through that, new data types and sources have been added all the time. That progression from negative only data to then positive data, the starting with the banking industry and then moving out through cards and into utilities and into telcos. So that expansion has, has happened. And in Experian, we've, we've also been plugging in other data sources over time, such as rental information or different information around the individual. I think what has changed, and this has changed for all of us hasn't it, over, the, over the last certainly feels like the last decade or so, is velocity. It's the speed of change. And that, the, the velocity has led us to, to think about things differently and to, at times, invest differently. So that's really the genus of my team and, and what we do. The data exchange team was recognition of the changing need of emphasis and the changing need for pace in our access to new data sources. Also recognition that this isn't easy. And actually, if you were to just leave this embedded within our business units and P&L owners, then by default, because it's not an easy win necessarily, it may not get the priority. So that in itself could be an impediment to um, innovation. So Experian took the decision just before my term, about two and a half years ago, to set up this dedicated global team to go and find partners who we can work with, where the combination of experienced data and services and a partner data and services can bring a new innovation to market, balancing a sort of three-legged value stool. Partnerships we're trying to create have to deliver value for the partner. There has to be value for experience. And ultimately, there has to be value for the data subject themselves. I don't particularly like the phrase alternative data myself. I think it goes back to that history of there have always been new data sources coming in, in to help make more effective credit decisions. We're just bringing more of them in now, and we're hopefully bringing them in at a, more of a speed. And on that point, John, I'd love to start with a closer look at one of the products that intrigues me the most, and that's Experience Boost. It's caused a lot of waves in the market, but there will be many of us who are not familiar with its workings in detail. Could you explain to us a little bit more about what Boost is doing and the philosophy behind it? I'm immensely proud and very, very excited about Boost. Boost is a product that we have live in both North America and the UK. It effectively allows a customer 
to contribute data information about themselves and for that to create an uplift, a boost in their credit score. And that boost in their credit score is often significant and can can be the difference between securing access to mainstream finance or be the difference between price that you actually pay for your for your credit. That's the important thing. It isn't just a PR and a marketing thing. It is actually having a tangible benefit for millions of customers in the in the US and the, and the UK. And I think the really exciting thing is it signals what I think is the future for personal data. It's a first step and there's a, there's a long path ahead. But it is the first time where people, I feel, can really come in and feel that they are in control and they can have an influence on the decisions that are being made around them. And it is, it is not just about the control, it's about the transparency. So at the moment, Boost uses open banking or similar variant in, in the US. It enables a customer to connect their, their bank accounts. Um, and we're looking for particular payment patterns and signals which are not available in mainstream credit. So for example, we will take regular subscription payments because we know that customers who have that regularity of payment, it's just a missing piece of their jigsaw. And actually, if we can see that behavior, that is a positive behavior which should be reflected in their score. The other important element of Boost is it can only be positive. The promise to the customer is we will look for these signals. We do look for negative signals as well as positive signals. But if the positive signals outweigh the negative signals, you get a boost. If they don't, it's forgotten. The data is lost and, and you move on with no detriment to you. So it's actually a very safe environment. Yeah, and I think in that there are two really interesting pieces for me, one for the industry and one for the consumer. I think firstly for the industry, you know, one of the clearest messages we always saying to people in the vast majority of cases, more data means a better credit score. Did you know there's only so many times I could go in the newspaper, do a show like this and say, actually, you know, consumers, we should have more data on the credit bureau because it's good for consumers. It's not really going to have that same impact, partly because it's filtered through somebody with a credit bureau background whose you know, intentions may be questioned, but also because it's quite theoretical still, whereas this is oh, I can try it out. There's no risk to me. I think the other thing that's really interesting as we as the credit industry battle with the idea of how do we advertise credit in a responsible way, there had always been the slightly awkward messaging in the market about, well, you should get a credit card out because you can build that long credit history, which is what's going to help you get a good credit score. And so some people who maybe weren't well suited to the temptations of a credit card would maybe be encouraged to get one because in the future they may want a mortgage. But we've got these other products. People may say I'm more comfortable using a debit card. We don't have to lose that positive nature now for their score. We can encourage people to take the right credit product for them for their credit needs and then you know, we can pick those same patterns up. If you've paid Netflix, you've paid your gym membership for five years. We can still build a credit model for you, even if everything you've done is on debit. Yeah, and, and look, completely. And, and I think to your, to your point, we can certainly see some changing demographic signals. Certainly younger generations not being as enticed, should we say, to credit as maybe the previous generations were. But, but also people taking credit much later into life. 
you don't have to go back too far in history to think that by the time I was 65, I paid off all my debt, I was retired, I lived for the rest of my life with the car that I, I ended. That isn't the world that we live in now. But those people, once their mortgage is paid off, what credit footprint do they have? Probably not, but they will still have an ongoing need potentially for credit. My dad's 86. He bought his last car when he was 80 on PCP. The credit industry and the way in which we recognize and understand people needs to respond. I'm going to call back to what you said earlier about not using the term alternative data. This is all data. There's no inherent value in credit bureau data that makes it special. It's very predictive, but it's the predictive nature that's important. And if you can find that predictive nature in another field or yeah, in this world of big data, probably replace one very predictive field with 100 slightly predictive fields, then so be it, because all we're trying to do is work out how likely someone is to repay their debts. And uh, whatever data is there is valid data. Yeah, I mean, just, just picking up on that, Brennan, when we are looking at new data sources, we have four acid tests that we run through. The first is the reliability of the data. So is it from a trustworthy source? Is it compliant? Is it of good quality? All those sorts of factors. The second, as you said, is the predictive nature of the data. Is it proving out or identifying the, the hypotheses and the insights that we um, expected and is doing something which existing data sets can't? The third one is about its scalability, which doesn't mean it has to be the whole population, but for the actual target audience that we're trying to benefit, does it have enough coverage? And, and the fourth one is, is it understandable, which I think is increasingly important for us. And we deliberately set the bar understandable rather than explainable because they're different. My, uh, my science teacher, much to his frustration, explaining the basics of physics to me. Unfortunately for me, it wasn't very understandable. But actually, that is a really, that's a really important point because it comes back to this control and transparency. If people do not understand it, then why would I trust it? So for us as organizations with new data and new insights, then we have to be able to help people understand why we're doing it and the, and the inferences we're drawing. I think that uh, as consumers become more aware of their data, that becomes more and more important. There used to be a time when it was just accepted that there was a credit bureau and people would often see it as, okay, that's just a list of negative factors that get kept there as long as I don't have a default. It's got nothing to do with me. And then the bureaus expanded and added a lot of data. And there's been a lot of work to bring consumers on board, but still the more sophisticated, the more complicated the data got, the less obvious the link was to consumers in their day-to-day -day lives. And people, I think, were getting quite frustrated. And, you know, the industry's brought out direct-to-consumer products that are now very mainstream. And we've got open banking, which I think we can touch on now, but we can't forget about the very important factor of can they understand what the state is doing? Because nobody's going to participate in something like open banking if they don't see those benefits. Boost, obviously, you've mentioned... Open banking underpins Boost, but is, is broader than Boost. How does Experian look at the broader concept of open banking? It's been a, it's been a really interesting experience, all, all the way to probably 2015, when there was a, uh, a precursor to open banking in the UK called MyData, which was a collective of the banks trying to do it themselves unsuccessfully because uh, it did need some regulation to shape it. But, but I remember the first conversations when we started to see this sort of the concept of the sort of open banking, open data 
environment emerging. The discussions as an organization were, is this a threat or is it an opportunity? There were certain views in the marketplace that this is the death knell of uh, credit reference agencies. And we looked at it, I looked at it differently. I, I really did think it was a huge opportunity because it brought a new, a very rich new data source in, into play. It had the ability to create new insights that were not currently available through the existing credit bureau data. It had a, it had the potential to have a, have a, have a speed of insight that also didn't exist within the existing bureau. And it was therefore pretty easy for us to conclude that this was highly complementary to existing bureau sets and wouldn't necessitate their replacement. And I looked at this across different markets. And so I think we, what you, what I concluded and we concluded was wherever you have an existing bureau, be it positive or negative, the addition of open banking data to that bureau will only be positive and, and hugely positive. So I've seen in sort of UK market, you can see an uplift of 10, 10 to 15 points using open banking data on a, on an average UK credit score. If you go to somewhere like Spain, which is negative only, then you, you can be 30 to 40. So you're not diminishing the value of the underlying data, you're just adding to it through open banking. And it, it plays into both parts of um, credit decisions. If I think about a credit decision in, in two parts and different regulators either stipulate these explicitly or just combine them into one. But one is one is around my credit worthiness and my willingness to pay and my historic behavior. Well, you can see that through my behavior patterns in, in open banking, my regularity of bill payments, et cetera, et cetera. The other, and this is an increasingly important aspect, where I still think you know, open banking has a bigger role to play, is my affordability, my ability to repay. And that's something that the industry has grappled with for, for some time. And we've had a number of, we do have solutions in market already. But actually, I mean, open banking is, is almost a silver bullet to that because you see 12 months of my income, 12 months of my expenditure, and it is a net position. So, you know, over my committed expenditure, how much flexibility do I have in my spending choices? As I say, I still think it has more ground to go. But as a data source, we are seeing it now play an important role in different parts of the customer lifecycle. Our start point was on affordability and credit decisioning. We then moved it into um, also including it within scores, which is part of our boost proposition. But we also have a B2B boost proposition sort of behind the scenes where lenders can, can use the data. We're seeing it make a play into collections. It's got an important part to play in helping people understand what is sensible in when creating a repayment plan for someone that needs to restructure their debt. We're also seeing it start to appear at this front end in terms of our eligibility assessments and being able to help people predict even before they purchase what credit they will be accepted for and it is right for them. So I think it's becoming uh, far more mainstream. There is still an unfamiliarity with it from a consumer perspective, I would say, but that is changing. Well, certainly in, in the UK and the US markets, we were all very well conditioned by the banks not to ever release our online banking credentials. And obviously, whilst it is a very secure interface that goes into directly into your online banking, um, it still involves your online banking credentials. So there's an immediate barrier there. But that, that familiarity is happening. The journeys have got much slicker from when we first started. When you have things like app-to-app -app authentication, that just makes it so much smoother. 
and people will, will engage will engage with it hugely, but probably won't even recognize it as open banking in the UK is around open banking payments, direct from bank payments. You're listening to How to Lend Money to Strangers with Brendan LaGrange. If you're enjoying it, now is a great time to hit that little plus button to subscribe. Let's get back to the show. What's also then exciting is actually then to see this happening in many countries now. We see it happening in, in the US, in Brazil, in India, in Indonesia, in Singapore, in Australia. All, all of these countries are getting behind not just an open banking uh, strategy, but more broadly an open data strategy. And I think it's that open data strategy which will create the next wave of innovation in credit decisioning. And it always happens a bit slower than I hope, but that's because I'm probably just impatient. We'll see some pretty game-changing things, I think, in the next three to five years. When I moved to the UK, I was amazed at the riches in terms of the data on the Credit Bureau for affordability, so current account turnover data in the Credit Bureau. So when you're looking at affordability, you could have a really good idea of people's incomes. But then my open banking team would come and say, yeah, but... Income is relatively easy to estimate. It always has been because we know from house prices and from credit card turnovers, we've always been able to get close, but expenditure has been notoriously difficult to estimate. So again, in the UK, there's data available. The government provides data by postcode on average expenditures, and they split that on a few categories. But I'm far less confident that I spend the same amount of money as my neighbors because that's far more personal. So if you could do income, but you can't do expenditure, you can't do affordability. And now open banking, as you said, you're seeing the net position and you're seeing the types of income, the types of expenditure. You know, you can categorize that into salary type income. Gambling winnings can be separated out if you want to be more conservative. Uh, Regulatory wise, you're not always allowed to include everything as income. So someone's receiving benefits and likewise with expenditure and it just opens up this big world of far deeper, more personal accuracy. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And for the consumer, I had my first experience of open banking again when I moved to the UK. So my wife is, has a British passport. I have a British passport. My youngest daughter has a British passport. But because of the vagaries of immigration law, my eldest daughter, who was born in Hong Kong, didn't qualify. But anyway, to prove my income, I had to get uh, HR from the company to print out and stamp 
a year's worth of salary slips. You know, we had long since given up on paper ones, but they had to specially print some out and then verify them. So that would show from the company side how much uh, they were paying me. Then I needed the same 12 months of bank statements printed out to show that that money was coming into the account. And then I needed to have tax returns from the government to show that that all aligned. And then the problem was that the latest bank statement couldn't be older than a month, essentially, I think it was. But my bank doesn't do formal bank accounts except at month end. So there was this very small window, which if you missed, you had to go get a whole nother month's worth of data. And then we got to the UK and, you know, we did the normal run around in the stress of finding a place to rent. And we finally found the house we wanted. We were just about to move in and I got a message from the real estate agent. The last thing we need to do is just verify your income. And I thought, oh no, here we go again. This is going to be even harder now because I'm in the UK. And the option was then get some bank statements or click this link for open banking. And yeah, it was two clicks. Here's your bank account. Okay, we can pop in, we can have a look. You've got the income needed and away you go. And having those sort of two contrasting positions, okay, one was a government bureaucracy, but being able to do it via this open banking was just life-changing at that moment. But it is obviously permeating down to a lot of budgeting apps, personal finance apps, where people are just giving a lot better control of their finances, giving themselves better visibility. And I think that's something you enable as well, right? Experian, we think of a credit bureau as just checking for somebody, whether they qualify for a loan, but you're also enabling people to access this data directly and um, via apps. Definitely. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute if I, if I could. Randy, I was just in, I was intrigued by your example and was, was feeling very, uh, was very sad for your daughter. But um, it's a really interesting use case, actually, because whilst open banking, it is so fantastic at net income and expenditure and, and et cetera, there is still a need in the market for gross income. Uh, I've had exactly the same experiences as you trying to get payslips. We launched a service actually in the UK last week, week before, called Work Report. Basically, again, with my permission, I can plug into my HR system and payroll provider and download that information and make it digitally available. We've had that service in uh, uh, in the US for, for a little while. Equifax has had that service in the US um, for, for quite a while. But again, just another example of another new data source, which is making our digital lives that little bit easier. But again, just another example of another new data source, which is making our digital lives that little bit easier. And then I meant to thought about your um, government example. And I think governments have got a real role to play in this. Actually, in the UK, HMRC launched a series of APIs for personal data access two, maybe even three years ago. I think they're still in beta. But actually, if collectively we come together and make these data sources available, just think about how much friction it would have taken out of your experience. There's very little, perhaps beyond an opinion poll or something, that can't be extracted from somewhere else with the right permissions. As you say, you need certain trusted brands, which is why it probably started in the banks, where people are a little bit more comfortable that if the bank's happy, I'm happy. But as long as those controls are in place and we, we trust the organization, if they can share that data, it saves me from having to do it. And so, yeah, I think open data is probably the, the better term. Yeah, and, 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 you're, and you're right. I think also di- digital identity is, is the key that unlocks that 
ecosystem of uh, um, open data over time, be that be that government-sponsored identities or private sector-led identities. As long as they're trusted across different organisations and different sectors, then you can get the same benefit. We, we deliberately chose not to start our open banking and financial education in the in the PFM personal financial management space. A number of these services had been around using screen scraping for uh, a little while. Through our investigation, there was a specific demographic that seemed to uh, enjoy them. But they also had a sort of backdrop of being a bit like a nagging nanny. They were coming and sort of, well, okay, I can now see all your, all your expenditure. And if you would um, stop buying that Starbucks every morning, you'll be rich. Well, one, you won't be rich. And two, I quite enjoy my Starbucks in the morning. So that's not, gonna, that's not really going to help my life. The next generation, I think, are becoming far smarter. If you can make the insights, one, far more powerful, actually less disruptive to your life and your behavior, and much easier to execute, then you start to get things that are exciting. So it first emerged in energy. But I can see what you are paying for, say, a particular credit card. I can then calculate that maybe you could be on a interest-free period credit card. And if you continue that payment for a period of time, do it actually reduce your reduce your debt, increase your score, create more cash, well, all those sorts of things. Those sorts of services, when they're linked to personal finance, are far more powerful and far more engaging than having a few pie charts and graphs. And I think that's the direction that we're heading in. And I think as more data sources come into play, but I do believe we're not far away from having that true digital financial assistant and fill the void that exists in most people's lives and in most countries where there is a lack of financial guidance and advice. Yeah, I've worked 20 years in retail banking and I don't understand how these products work. And I mean, we used to laugh in our office, Michael would be the guy you go to talk to if you want a credit card because he would say, well, tell me about how you spend it because this card on Mondays, it's half price at restaurants. This card, you get double air miles if you spend it here. This card, you get half price discount if you go here on a Thursday. Sort of an encyclopedia of the various competing offers. And you could talk to him for a bit and uh, he would say, okay, you need to get the card from Bank A. Um, but yeah, there's this so complicated. And obviously the credit card is probably a, a low stakes one. But in terms of loans and what are the pricing, what are the penalty fees, what are the fees versus the interest rates? Yeah, we should we should put a finance app together and call it Michael. He's quite savvy though. He'll 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 know who he is and probably come for his share. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to give him twenty percent. Um, I think uh, one thing as we close up is is worth calling out is you know we've spoken about the US and the UK markets, but open banking or broader data, the search for more data, more useful data, is something that's happening around the world in developed and developing markets. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. Sometimes it's too easy to think that the developed and the developing markets are so different that they they don't share any common characteristics or ability to cross fertilize. And my experience is is very different. By necessity, developing markets, so for us the likes of Indonesia, India, etc., are the um creators of innovation, but that that innovation also can have an applicability into the more mature and developed market. So if I take something like telco and mobile data as, as an example, 
This is where in Indonesia, we have worked with the four largest telcos to be able to use their telco data, the behavior data within the telco and the device to be able to create a credit score and give up to 100 million people access to credit. That's fantastic from a from a financial inclusion perspective. There is no bureau there. There's a high unbanked population, as we know. And you think, well, what's the relevance of that to a more mature market like the UK? Well, it comes back to the conversation we were having earlier about the changing demographics and the changing needs. If I am a 24-year-old and I want to switch from a pay-as-you-go mobile contract to a monthly payment uh, contract, but I don't have a credit history and I don't particularly want a credit card, I'm very familiar with my mobile and my device data. We are seeing a a potential willingness to potentially share that and gain my first access to credit. So whilst these things are often born and out of necessity in the developing markets, they have a much wider applicability, equally, equally flowing the other way. I mean, the the, the knowledge that we have we are being able to share from the UK into India and into, into Indonesia is huge. And that, that knowledge and learning, you have to always, as ever, take it and make it locally applicable. But it means you don't start with a blank sheet of paper. It is definitely, for me, a two-way street. And I certainly feel benefits from having that sort of global perspective. Yeah, and I think that's a really good message in general because... We had a period where there was a separate line of innovation where a lot of that innovation was solving problems around logistics that simply didn't exist in the developed world. But now we've seen emergence of the same sort of e-commerce, the same sort of online payments. And yeah, of course, there's differences. But for the most part, the sort of innovation that's happening is far more transportable back to the developed world. If somebody builds a smartphone app, to solve a banking problem in India or in Nigeria, that app could be used in the Western world far easier than when it was a feature phone app that was using SMS technology to try and send a micropayment. You know, that wasn't something that was needed, but have you built a better budgeting app? Have you built a better funds transfer app? You know, all these things can be moved. Look, most definitely, and we, we learn we learn wherever we go. Things like if I'm looking at open banking in Indonesia, then it's going to have a heavier prevalence of use of payment. But actually, at its core, at its heart, the understanding of the inflows, the income and the outflows is exactly the same. The financial vehicle doesn't matter. The thing that excites me most about the next five years is seeing this open data regime really gaining shape. And it's gaining shape in different areas. As I say, UK might be leading in open banking. Brazil's, for example, leading the world in terms of open insurance. Somewhere like Indonesia is going to drive the world in terms of how payment wallets operate. Collectively, everywhere can learn together from that. All these data sources have the ability to create not just new insights, but better experiences for customers and ultimately better outcomes for customers. For me, that's uh, that's a really exciting world to be uh, to be living in, and I'm uh, I'm grateful every day I get out of bed with a little, well, not always on Mondays, but often get out of bed with a spring in my step. What a great message to end on, uh, John! Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, and thank you all for listening. If you haven't done so already, like, share, and subscribe to the show. How to Lend Money to Strangers is written, hosted, and edited by myself, Brendan Lagrange. The theme tune and show music is by I Am Wake. 
and you can find show notes, written transcripts, more in-depth articles, and details on how to book me for speaking engagements at www.howtolendmoneytostrangers.show. I'll see you again next Thursday. me again just in case you've had your full of lending talk did you know that i've also published two pulpy action adventure thrillers draken and butterfly hill are both available as ebooks paperbacks and audiobooks from amazon and other online retailers they're not shakespeare but they're not expensive either and ford clarion reviews compare draken to clive Cussler turning raiders of the last ark into a shoot 'em up full disclosure that was in a three-star review so i'm not sure it was meant to be a compliment but I think you get the picture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 